Hello and welcome to The World Ahead on Economist Radio. I'm Tom Standage, Deputy Editor at The Economist. In this future-gazing podcast series, we consider provocative prophecies and speculative scenarios to gain a different perspective on the present and help us better prepare for what might come next. Today, we're looking at the future of cities and the extent to which their prospects, popularity and populations are being reshaped by the pandemic. I think what's the most innovative is the fact that cities have taken on this new tolerance for experimentation. What are the political implications of a shift towards more remote working from suburban areas? Local businesses, local communities, local councils, local organisations will want more say and they will have more clout and more of a voice. And what might big cities look like in a few years' time? I think some of the global cities will look a bit scruffier. I think we'll be thinking much less about the big metropolis and much more about specific locations within that metropolis. I'm standing on a street corner in Covent Garden, not far from The Economist's London offices, a street that would normally be bustling with theatre-goers, office workers, black cabs and tourists, now looks very different. With London in lockdown, the theatre over the road is closed, as are the nearby pubs and restaurants. Most shops are closed too, and there are few people on the streets. And what's this? A new cycle lane has appeared. A city could be thought of as a machine for bringing people together. In a pandemic, of course, that's the last thing you want. When theatres, nightclubs and offices are forced to close, or when people are afraid to visit them, the impact on villages or small towns is minimal. Cities, by contrast, almost stop functioning. The enforced switch to remote working has also made employees and companies question the importance of having to live near or within big cities. So the pandemic has caused a sudden and unexpected change in the fortunes of such cities, which had been riding high since the turn of the century. I think the big trend in rich world cities over the last 20 years has really been the triumph of the city. Joel Budd is The Economist's social affairs editor. He wrote about the outlook for cities in our annual The World in 2021. There's been a kind of developing view, I think, especially since about 2000 that central cities were sort of recovering and essentially doing much better than suburbs. I mean, it's been an era of city centre living and city centre offices, not an era of kind of suburban office parks and suburban living. So there was a general sense then that people wanted to live in a vibrant, dynamic, urban and sort of central urban or near to central urban environment. Yes, exactly. And and so we saw the publication of books, uh, things like The Great Inversion and The Triumph of the City, which were really about how cities were benefiting from sort of agglomeration effect. They were sort of sucking in and centralising sort of intellectual work. And, you know, if you were a company or if you were a sort of brain worker, you, you really had to be in a city centre. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to succeed because you wouldn't have access to all those sort of other minds. And there was a great deal of writing about the decline of suburbia, which was frequently described as being, you know, kind of increasingly poor, increasingly crime-ridden, 
and just not attractive to sort of the millennial generation. So what's the prevailing view now and has the pandemic changed attitudes? Yes, I think the pandemic has changed attitudes. I mean, sort of very suddenly, all of the things that cities really had going for them suddenly started to look like disadvantages or they just sort of disappeared. People living in the great cities can no longer enjoy all the pubs and sort of cultural offerings that are in those cities. In the early days of the pandemic, many people in big cities, especially Paris, they moved if they could to their country homes or to sort of more suburban areas. So I think there's been a kind of sudden recalibration. As the appeal of big cities has waned, suburbia suddenly looks much more alluring, and so do smaller towns and cities that offer some of the amenities of bigger cities, but are also more affordable, more walkable and less crowded. I think evening out is probably a good way of putting it. Yolanda Barnes is Professor and Chair at the Bartlett Real Estate Institute at University College London and an expert on property markets. I think what we're actually seeing is the proper dawning of the digital city, as it were. I think for the last, what, 30 or 40 years in a lot of the major global cities of Europe and North America in particular, we've seen what I would call, to use a COVID analogy, a sort of breathing in, a sucking in of capital, of people, of talent, concentrations of cultural activity, all sorts of activities in the city. So I think the real estate industry and indeed local government in a lot of these global capitals has got used to the idea that the city is ever expanding and always growing and attracting people and money. And to continue the COVID analogy, I think what we're, we're seeing now is cities breathing out across Europe, North America, and even Australia. And what it, what it means is that people have been looking for alternative types of urbanism, alternative lifestyles, more livable cities very often. And it, this has started uh, very often in the digital and creative industries, where you, you see little outposts, if you like, little particles that have been breathed out from the global city, very often still within reach of the global city, but creative, digital and fourth age industry proving to be a little bit more footloose than the financial industries that were sucked into the big global cities in the 80s and 90s. Right. So this is the sort of Portlandification of cities, because Portland and its relationship to San Francisco and also Seattle would be a classic example of that, wouldn't it? Really good example. You've also got the uh, sort of Nashville, Durham, Raleigh, Savannah. You can name a whole host of uh, Austin in Texas, you know, as opposed to Houston or, or Dallas. These sort of alternative cities have gained status all over the Western world. Like many big cities, London has a belt of commuter towns on its outskirts that offer a combination of a quieter life with easy access to the metropolis. We've got a long tradition of very successful market towns in this country. Bim Afalami is a Conservative Member of Parliament who represents Hitchin and Harpenden, an area outside London that includes several commuter towns, the sorts of places, he says, that have become more attractive as a result of the pandemic. They are nice places to live and people will want to live in them and 
they want to live in them not because of their proximity to London or Cambridge or wherever, but because they are where they want to live. And the services those people are going to want are going to start to need to be replicated from London. They're going to want the nice cafes, the nice restaurants, the nice bars, those sorts of things. They are going to want the strong community organisations, etc. So I think that that is really the future that England and and the UK and, and other countries will be facing. What's the impact on politics if people spend less time commuting in and out of city centres and more time in these suburban and rural areas? It's going to mean that a lot of people who previously didn't spend a huge amount of time in their local communities, they didn't necessarily volunteer for the scouts, they didn't necessarily help with the local charity, they didn't even spend that much of their money locally in the town. Those people are going to spend more of their time doing that and as a result are going to become more locally focused, I think, in their politics. They're going to become more concerned about things like new planning developments. They're going to become more concerned about the nature of how how green it is and what the experiences is like. So I think actually the impact in politi- raw political terms is that they may in fact become more locally civic minded. Obviously in Britain, city dwellers are more likely to vote Labour and in the US they're more likely to be Democrats. So if city centres become less attractive, what does that mean politically? First of all, I'm not convinced cities will necessarily become less attractive. But if they were to be and a certain type of urbanite did not want to live, for example, in the centre of London anymore. It will mean that the Conservative Party, or indeed Conservative parties with a similar sort of vote profile, will have to think more carefully about attracting and being attractive to a particular type of cosmopolitan voter. Because in a society that is overall becoming more urban, more cosmopolitan, more educated, one has to make sure that you are working with that trend and not against it. What does all this mean for the provision of services, tax raising and so on, if people are spending time in different places and if the mix of people is changing? I think it means that the trend of localism that you've found in the UK over the last 10 years, more decisions for local people, I think will continue and intensify. I think it will be harder to centralise more decisions to London if that were the intention of any particular government or policy. I think that local businesses, local communities, local councils, local uh, organisations will want more say and they will have more clout and more of a voice to have that say because of the increased local interest and local buy-in to those organisations. So I think that it will increase the trend of localism that we've seen. So have you seen an impact on house prices and office rents that might suggest your constituency is becoming more attractive relative to central London? I'm not sure it's relative to central London, but I do know that both office rents and house prices have gone up in my constituency, and I'm sure that's the case for for other similar well-off constituencies outside London. And I suspect that that trend will will continue because where people go, people want to take their work with them. And I think we're actually going to maybe see over the next five to 10 years, increased numbers of businesses wanting to locate in attractive places outside London because the business owners feel that they don't necessarily need to have that office in, inside the big city anymore.
Big cities' prospects have dimmed in the past year, while suburbs and smaller cities have become more attractive. Property expert Yolanda Barnes explains the challenges big cities face in responding to the changing needs of the post-COVID era. I think the real danger for all of these cities has actually been a lot of the new developments that have happened over the last 20 or 30 years, which have, have tended to turn their back on, say, traditional streetscapes, which are notoriously walkable and permeable and accessible and so forth, and very much favoured by a lot of the sort of new entrepreneurial industries in those cities. And where we've created the high-rise city, not just high-rise, just the sort of big block city that's less walkable, I think those sorts of neighbourhoods are going to find it very much more difficult to reinvent themselves for, for the later part of the 21st century. Many cities around the world have used the pandemic as an opportunity to experiment with changes to street layouts, adding new cycle lanes, creating pedestrianised areas and imposing additional restrictions on cars. These changes are being catalogued by the Shifting Streets dataset, a global database that tracks the way street space is being reallocated in cities around the world. You know, I think what's the most innovative is the fact that cities have taken on this new tolerance for experimentation. Tabitha Combs is a specialist in transport planning at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and is one of the co-creators of this database. So which city's projects is she following most closely? One example that comes up um, a lot in the U.S. is Oakland, California, because they have taken bold action quickly. They worked quickly to roll out a plan for um, what they called um, slow streets um, that they planned to roll out on a pretty wide basis across the city. And they got a lot of pushback early on that they didn't expect from a lot of minority communities, a lot of communities of color said, wait, this is not what we wanted. This is not what we thought we talked about. And so the the city, rather than walking away from it, they said, okay, well, maybe this is telling us we need to do a better job of understanding what people in our communities actually do want. And they took the time to trial new ideas, to test things, and to work with the community to fine tune their solutions. And that is surprisingly novel, sort of disappointingly novel in the transportation planning world. Another city that I think is, is certainly worth following up on is Bogota, Colombia. They almost overnight, almost literally overnight, put in you know, tens of kilometers of new bike lanes. Early on, they recognized the need to get people off of crowded public transit um, until they could figure out how to operate transit more safely. They already had plans in place to, to limit the amount of motor vehicle traffic. They knew something needed to happen to accommodate the, the demand for mobility. They had an extensive bikeway network and they expanded it dramatically. Um, and it's it's stuck. Um, and so I think that's a, that's another really, really interesting case as a, you know, an anticipation of a demand for, for bicycling and for walking that we don't normally take into account, at least not um, in North America. What is the impact of all of this um, on public transport? Obviously, it's terrible as far as rider levels and funding is concerned. But what do you think the long term impact on public transport is likely to be? I try to be optimistic and I'm not sure I can be optimistic about public transport. As you said, the ridership levels have plummeted. And I think a lot of people 
who shifted to other modes, particularly people who decided I'm, I'm just going to get a car and I'm going to drive. I don't think that public transit is, is going to be able to bring them back very easily. I also think there's been a lot of push um, for people who realize if I'm stuck in my apartment or I'm stuck in my very small condominium during a pandemic, I don't like it. I need more space. There's, I mean, there's been a push to the suburbs, to suburban locations that are harder to serve with the public transport systems that we have in place now. So I think it's going to take a huge investment, massive subsidies to public transport to help it bridge this gap. You know, once service declines, you lose riders forever. And so we need to keep service levels high, even if that means massive public investments to run empty buses for the next five to 10 years until people start coming back to transport. Because you, if you, once service drops off, it is really hard to bring back a ridership base. Going back to street layouts then, um, these changes to create more space for people and bicycles, might that make city centres more attractive places to live? And might that make fleeing to the suburbs seem a bit less alluring? I think a lot of these changes have been recognition that, that people want space and they need more space. Um, public health has been a huge motivator of it. Um, we recognize that people are healthier when they're out and when they're exercising. But during a, a viral pandemic, everyone needs more space to do that safely. And so that, that's been a big motivator. I'm not sure I would say that it's a recognition that people want to flee to the suburbs and so we need to, to keep them from leaving by adding public space. I, I don't know that that's figured into the calculus as much as the more reactionary people need space to exercise, people need space to get fresh air um, and to be out in the open, or people need to get to work and they're no longer willing to ride, ride public transit so we need to provide an alternative. It's clear that what people want from cities is one of the many things being rethought as a result of the pandemic. But history tells us that cities are amazingly adaptable and can rebound from crises surprisingly quickly. If shops and offices are abandoned, people will find new uses for them. Adapting to shocks is what great cities do. I asked our guests to predict how they think cities will change in the next decade, starting with Bim Afalami, Conservative Member of Parliament. They will be greener, they will have fewer cars, I think less attractive to older, more senior people, but they'll still be a place of ideas and there'll be melting pots and there will still be the most exciting places for younger people to live. Yolanda Barnes from University College London. I think some of the global cities will look a bit scruffier. I think we'll be thinking much less about the big metropolis and much more about specific locations within that metropolis. I think there is the risk that some of the environments that we've been building over the last few decades will see quite dramatic decline. Tabitha Combs from the University of North Carolina. I would expect a majority of cities, particularly in Europe, but also somewhat in North America, to have developed plans to see maybe 30% of trips in 2030 or 2040 being made by modes other than the private motor vehicle, whether it's driven by a human or a computer. And finally, Joel Budd from The Economist. I think that in 10 years' time, cities will be strong. They will be different but in ways that it's sort of impossible to predict. It also, I think, reflects the strength of cities, which is that they are so extraordinarily surprising. Thank you to Bim Afalami, Yolanda Barnes, Tabitha Combs and Joel Budd. 
and thank you for listening to The World Ahead. This episode was produced by Simon Jarvis. You can find more future gazing analysis in our annual The World in 2021, which is on newsstands now and available to subscribers at economist.com slash worldin. If you're not already a subscriber, you're missing out. So go to economist.com slash radio offer to subscribe. I'm Tom Standage in London. This is The Economist. 